I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. This month's single-serving selection, Return to Oz. How about some nightmare fuel, Casey? I'd love it. Is this, uh, I'm available from 2 to 4 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon. Oh, okay. You're not going to be getting my... electroshock therapy no. then? <laughs> no, I'll be in front of my television, which is a like, like a kind of shock therapy. Oh, so, I don't know if there's any easy way to get into this, but we are talking about 1985's Disney's Return to Oz, which is the semi-sequel continuation adaptation of two Oz books, movie... Soft sequel reboot? Yeah, it's, um... It's wow. Uh, but yeah, it, it came out in 1985. It's, it was wow. a part of my childhood, uh, directed by Walter Murch, who is an Academy Award winning sound designer and editor. Um, he actually did the film editing of Apocalypse Now, Ghost, Godfather Part Two. I mean, he's got a long storied career. This is the only thing that he ever got a chance to direct. The only thing. And he did not. <laughs> this was a movie that was not a huge box office. It was a massive flop for them. It was something they kind of rushed out in sort of desperation because the Oz books were going into public domain. And it has become a cult film since then. And it is spooky as shit in places. <laughs> so uh, let's bring in our guest. Uh, she is, I believe this is the fourth or fifth time you've sat down with us on one of our shows. Uh, you're a librarian. You're a nightmare fuel ambassador for us. Of course, <laughs> a friend of the show, Kit DeForge. There's really no place like home. And after this movie, I don't want to return there. <laughs> so there's that. Aren't but you, aren't you also our librarian of Occultica? You know, I, I use the term resorceress underneath uh, my email signatures at work. So I can say that's a safe bet. Yes. So, Kit, I think we've danced around it a lot here, but... Uh, Return to Oz, if you had to synopsize this movie in a paragraph or two, and I've tried, it's hard. Um, how? What is Return to Oz all about? Um, I would first ask people if they've ever played Alice uh, Madness Returns, I believe it is, any of the American McGee's Alice. Uh, Alice and then say, well, it's that. And then when they shrug <laughs> at me and they go, I didn't play that game from X amount of years ago, I would essentially say, what if somebody Frank Millerized? Uh, Wizard of Oz to the degree that all your hopes and dreams as a child were just obliterated and, you know, just just frozen into this position of anything that you could imagine with the rose colored glasses of childhood is now going to be just just smeared with dirt and covered in that brown <laughs> video game filter. Um, also, do you like puppets? Oh, yes. <laughs> so, um Golly, how do I how do I do this better? I'm thinking that um, talking about this movie, we would say it's what happens when Dorothy comes back home and being stuck with the reality of Kansas does what most kids do and sticks to the fantastic. Parents need her to be useful at the farm and being a dreamer doesn't help with practical concerns like that. So they do what any loving aunt and uncle would do. Oh. And send their child in to a sanitarium. Mm. It's at this point that uh, Dorothy has to make a daring escape and go back to where her daydreams and memories lived, only to find that things have changed drastically. I think that's yeah. a little bit round. It's an yeah. apocalyptic Oz movie. Yeah, pretty much. And I did not it's, expect turn-of-the-century sanitarium. I, I thought this was a little bit like the very last part of uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, you know? Where the, what is it, the something-ing of the Shire? The scouring of the, the Shire. The scouring of the Shire. Yeah. It's a little bit like Dorothy returns to Oz, and the or the orcs have been there and, like, destroyed everything, and the, everything's in ruins and collapsed, and she has to be like, how do I pick up the pieces? So, it's, so kid, I sort of discerned in your description the fantasy reality element. Are you of the opinion that this is all in Dorothy's head? Like, the first movie kind of hints at I, I think that it would be a bit of a mistake to attribute too much of the Judy Garland movie to this movie. Um, 
although it seems like they've definitely done a little salad barring of trying to make sure that your fond memories of this movie are not going to be eclipsed by what they're giving you instead. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I, certainly they don't <laughs> achieve that at all. <laughs> be, because I, I think this movie in a lot of regards stands on its own the same way if you made a movie about any kind of legend mm-hmm. that you may not necessarily have to tell the story. In a lot of regards, I think it's kind of similar to how we've been doing these dark superhero movies, because you don't have to tell me who Superman is. You don't have to tell the average person who Superman is. But instead, you just kind of advance on it from the assumption that people are aware. I, That being said, I would like to believe that this is more about children being put in the position of having to mature and then come to terms on their own terms with how they do that. Hmm. Um, Just like the previous movie, we've noticed that the same actress plays Mombi as uh, the nurse Mm -hmm. in the asylum. And the doctor that performs the electroshock on her is also in there as the Goblin King. Yeah. So I think no, they uh, want us uh, to draw The Gnome that. King. Oh, thank you. Thank Only you. Only David Gnome Bowie can be the Goblin King. I, thank you very much. I was much. too busy fantasizing about <laughs> this uh, dark, strange children's movie going a completely different direction. Yeah, Labyrinth is a, is a different <laughs> 80s fantasy movie that when David Bowie's on stage, it seems to be in 3D. <laughs> yeah, you know? I think 3D goggles would lead to eyes being poked out um, <laughs> as far as that one goes. Uh, also, one of the orderlies at the sanitarium is the head wheeler. Yeah. And yes, that's why when he's pushing yes. that gurney around, it has that same squeaky wheel that the wheelers have. So can we, talk, to, can we talk about the, the – just the, the we need to unpack for people visually what this movie represents because I think we have a notion of what Wizard of Oz looks like on the screen, obviously because of the first movie. Because, 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 yeah. because, because. <laughs> and and the songs in there, which is interesting that this movie is entirely... It's not a musical. There's no, there's, there's no music sung in here at all. Um, the Dorothy starts off as a much littler girl than she was depicted with Judy Garland. Um, and it's a bleak, it's a dust bowl kind of world, right? It's very definitely a period piece. They do outright say that it takes place in 1899, that we're at the turn of the new century, and... I guess you could say this is something that's thematically similar to the original, which is that in the original, there's sort of this black and white sepia tone to the real world or Kansas, and that this is a stark sort of vision. It's very empty. It's very muted colors. Uh, People are on uh, horses and buggies that are very squeaky, and there's that kind of sound design that, like, you're watching an episode of Deadwood. It's beautiful. And there's something very naturalistic about it. It isn't where you want the obviously a 1939 movie isn't going to look like a, you know, 1985 movie. And yeah, but there is that sense of this feeling much more black and white in the same way. There's something much more mundane and grounded where Oz is kind of bright and colorful, even in the places where it's apocalyptic and everyone in the Emerald city has been turned to stone and there's that graffiti on the wall, but there's these bright poppy colors off of of a lot of these characters and everything is sort of bright and colorful that there's a bright verdant green of the forest. So it has that same kind of connection. And here's the thing that looking this up, apparently this is much closer thematically tonally to the actual books that L. Frank Baum wrote. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And this one's heavily based on, especially two of them, um, The Marvelous Land of Oz and Ozma of Oz with elements of TikTok of Oz. And so that stuff's all in there. And they even bring up stuff that they didn't do in the original movie, like the origin of the Tin Man is mentioned in this hmm. with that sort of horrible Heavy. Grimm's fairy tale kind yeah. of grossness yeah. that we kind of shielded kids from in movies. Where it's like, oh, he used to be made of flesh, but then he chopped off his arm and replaced it with tin. And he's just replacing parts until he's all, you know, tin. And what I kind of got out of this movie is this is Tim Burton before Tim Burton was a thing. Hmm. That I found out this movie came out two months before Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which was Tim Burton's first big movie. But this movie is full of Tim Burton-y things. It's got puppets and claymation and a heroine with giant expressive eyes, and uh, it's got, like, the wheelers. Like, I think we should talk about 
uh, the Wheelers a yeah. little bit because they're probably something that would have never been in the 1939 movie. And they are from the books. <laughs> they're basically these guys that are kind of like a cross between like Batman villains who dress in sort of a cross between like Sergeant Pepper and straight jackets. And they've got these long distended arms with squeaky wheels on the end of them. And they run around on all fours laughing maniacally. Backup dancers. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's <laughs> kind of terrifying. They, and they, the, they have helmets that on the top of the helmet, they have a stone face fixed in some <laughs> position. And when you first see them, the heads are down, so all you're, all you're seeing is this weird face on these wheels. And then they lift their head up, and it's just a balding actor with, like, color in his eyebrows. But it's still pretty scary. <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> and they kind of talk like the bad guys in, like, a Dirty Harry movie do. Where <laughs> I, thought every- I thought it was more reminded of the two uh, bird guys from Highlander 2. Yeah, there's Those a bit guys. of that. <laughs> <laughs> What's like coming at like an actual what like ten year old actress or something like that screaming? I'm going to rip you in pieces and throw you in the I deadly know, desert. The deadly yes. desert, yeah. Yep. Which is another weird, crazy body horror fate that somebody can face because the Oz. This again from the books is that there's a desert surrounding Oz that either surrounds it from the real, you know, sur- you know, separates it from the real world, or I don't know, it's in another realm. They're never really clear about that with Oz, but. Um, if any living thing touches the sand of this desert, you turn into sand and just crumble. <laughs> and we see that happen to a couple of the wheelers. Well, don't forget that we that Dorothy arrives uh, after uh, in Oz with her chicken, who can now talk to her. So instead uh, of Belina. a dog, instead of Doug, it's, it's Belina. Yeah, Be- Belina the chicken. Belina the chicken who talks. <laughs> and the first thing that she she does is she realizes, like, oh, we're in the desert of despair? Wait, is that what it's called? The deadly desert. The deadly the desert. Deadly Excuse desert. me, the deadly the desert. of despair. Deadly she, desert. She, she knows uh, immediately, like, oh, sh- we got to walk over the rocks to get in here. Otherwise, we're screwed. Yeah, and Dorothy has her sense- shit together. Yeah, Dorothy does have her yeah. shit together. It's and, kid sensibility. I love that. It, it's Dor- the lava game. You know, it is the lava game. Yeah. It is the lava game. It, Dorothy does straighten shit out, though. I mean, really, she walks into Oz knowing that her job... She's a little bewildered, of course. But she walks into Oz knowing that her mission is to straighten shit out. And she's like... She gets shit done, like, right away. And either she's been totally validated and she's not crazy the way everyone thinks, <laughs> or this is a spiral into madness. Yes. <laughs> and it feels like a spiral into madness. And even when she comes out of it at the end, it comes out in such a way that somebody coming out of a fugue state would... And I kind of love just enough weirdness there that, uh, but you get like the lunch pail tree, which seems like that would be something you might have in the original 1939 movie. Right. And then it gets fucking weird from there. Um, I mean, so what she, she's chased by the wheelers and there's like, there's just a gaggle of them. It doesn't matter. They can run her down if, if she wants to, but she's found a key to Oz on her farm. This is a sort of, could be the connection that she has to her, Unreality, um, yeah. Because her chicken, yeah, her chicken found it. Yeah, Belina found it, and I, I think that's interesting too. Because there's, they do that whole bit about if you don't start laying eggs, they're looking into eating you, and this kind of funny parallel of if you don't start being productive and snap out of this stuff, they, you know, they put her in a sanitarium kind of thing. This idea that if you're not, if you're not useful, and if you're not able to fulfill a specific purpose that is productive. It, it's kind of over for you. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's what's interesting about Dorothy being so capable in this movie and so, like like you said, determined to go straighten things out, is this idea that before she gets there, there's a lot of talk from her family members about, like, look, we don't have a lot of money. You can't be slacking around. Like, we're having trouble surviving here, and you have to take on a role. Mm-hmm. And I think it makes more sense for a child to look at accepting those roles as some form of heroism and kind of alleviates the pressure in that fantasy sort of sense, even though in a lot of senses, the stakes are more obvious when she gets to Oz. Mm-hmm. So. And she's also the most important person suddenly in this world. Well, yeah. Here's, here's the one disconnect that I don't understand from the character as it stands as being, because the way that L. Frank Baum wrote this is that this is clearly not the first time that Dorothy has been to Oz. She's someone who's been, been around the block and knows the place, obviously. Um, is that they choose to start this movie off with a depiction of Dorothy. Not only is she, this is just from movie watchers, not from the videos of the books, but not only is she younger, because she obviously appears younger than the character that we're used to seeing. So you're re- you're functionally recasting recasting the age, the perceived age of what you think Dorothy is. But she also f- 
This is someone who's been through the ringer, going through Oz, and learned to wield a sense of agency, of being able to find control and triumph, because that's, of course, what the what her, the unmasking the wizard is all about and getting her friends what they need to get, um, is that in here she is, is basically like a little girl and has no agency at all. And doesn't seem, to, other than having a vague recollection and having stories that she tells her parents, she doesn't seem to brought any of that back with her. So to me, it felt like this is almost as a movie that was made from the perspective of this is the first time I've ever seen an Oz movie ever. Well, people listen to her in Oz, which is different than the real world. The people just talk over her or condescend to her. Like the way the doctor talks, he brings out the electroshock machine. He's like, oh, see, it has a face on <laughs> it's it. It's a little face. And it's a tongue. And these are the things that will probably leave you a vegetable. But I mean, that's, and it's that sort of stuff. But I mean, that's again, one of those moments too, where there is a moose head or a deer head on the wall in the office. There's the pumpkin that she gets uh, from the mysterious girl in the asylum. And then there, you know, this, all this stuff that sort of comes together and the machine has a twisty key on it. So this could be her, you know, descending into madness and she's just, you know, like the end of uh, the usual suspects pulling a bunch of things on the wall and, you know, constructing a fantasy world out of it. Well, I love how much of that, like, like you said, with the deer head on the wall and things like that. Um, And also with Jack, the pumpkin, there are a lot of images of like heads, Mm -hmm. heads as far as my head is fuel around my head. See if it's soft in any places, if it's rotting, there's attaching the gum to like the couch thing. Yes. To make that creature. Plus is, again, the, all the princesses, 30-something heads. Yeah. You know, there, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's a lot about heads being separated from bodies. Yes. And how we describe things like daydreaming as like head in the clouds, this idea mm. that you're disconnected from reality. And I don't know, God, I, I think that's one of my favorite things about the movie is that if you're going to go dark with this idea, again, of growing up, of... You shouldn't be able to dream. We're going to shock the dreams right out of your head that <laughs> that follows really beautifully in how they they took these stories and they took these characters that were already in the books, but really hyper emphasized that idea with the framing of her going into the sanitarium. And even the bad guys in Oz, it's about them sucking the magic and the color out of Oz and her having to restore it. Yeah. That the the Emerald City has all its emeralds taken away. Everyone's turned into this gray stone. And she's the one that brings color and beauty and all these things back to a place that's been wrecked. <laughs> um, like, Mombi um, is really fucking freaky in this movie. And it's one of the images that I remember, because I saw this on VHS as a kid. And of all the things, it was amazing how watching this, how much of this movie was so clear in my head. And it was exactly the way I remembered it in ways that... There's always there's always a way that your brain will color and recontextualize and you your perception as a child is very different. Yeah. So when you revisit something, you're now seeing something as an adult that you had processed as a kid and you're seeing that kid processed version. No, this was like exactly the way I remembered it. Mm-hmm. Including the fact that, you know, Mombi has beheaded these 30 women in Oz, these dancing women. And kept their heads in these glass cases where they seem to be sort of awake and sort of looking around. And they all go to sleep at night. And Dorothy has to steal the powder of life from one of these cases. The powder of life. The powder of life uh, to bring the gump to life. And My immediate association with with that was just cocaine from early, <laughs> ca- you know, spooks and uh, charlatans in, uh, you know, early chemists and charlatans back in the old mail order days. As I thought that it was just like an illusion, sidelong illusion to cocaine. It, yeah, and that existed yeah. in the books as well. Oh, did it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting because yeah. I, I think Baum did a pretty spectacular job of translating real world goings on and real world culture and real world expectations into things that a child would frame that as. Yeah. It's that powder of life thing that's interesting. You did have people <laughs> using cocaine medicinally. That was basically is a, medicine back then. Is this a work mm-hmm. of science fiction? Um. I don't even. It depends on how you're defining that term. I because the the world of Oz is fundamentally a world that in some way is after like the industrial age. Whatever industrial age exists in Oz or parallel to Oz has basically already went through its course, right? Um, because you have robots. Oz, the army of Oz, is a TikTok mm-hmm. um, and a, a single a, clockwork a, man. A, a, yeah, a single basically mechanical 
pro- product of industry, essentially. And so is the, what the all the wizards' machines. He's always stuff. prided himself on his lifelessness. I love the design of TikTok in this movie. I, I yeah. do too. I do too. And he's what having an android or a robot is essentially, I think, one of the has to be one of the single most basic frameworks of a science fiction story. The weird thing mm-hmm. is, all of Dorothy's companions, which were really kind of stranger, weirder body horror versions of the companions she had in the original movie. So she doesn't have the Tin Man or the Cowardly Lion who both turned to stone, and she doesn't have the Scarecrow who's been captured by the Gnome King. Um, she has uh, Jack Pumpkinhead, mm-hmm. who is basically kind of a stick man scarecrow with a pumpkin head, um, brought to life with the power of life. Uh, she's got uh, TikTok, you've mentioned before, who is the clockwork guy who has, oh, I love him. He's made out of brass and he's he's kept up by, you have to twist these keys on his back to wind him up. Wind up toy. He's a wind up yeah. toy where he has three different keys, one for thinking, one for talking and one for action. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the kind of love about Dorothy and again in this movie is that his action is still going and his talking is still going, but his brain ran down <laughs> and he's just kind of like spouting nonsense. And Jack is just like, well, how does he keep talking if his brain ran down? She's like, and Dorothy just politely says, it happens to people all the time, Jack. Me too. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, it's, and with the wind up thing too, to go back to your question about science fiction, like, most of our early definition of robotics, and I've got like stacks of these books at home, um, talks about auto- or autonom- bleh, automatons yeah. um, as these wind-up sort of things that, that uh, before we were using computers and things, the idea was if you could get it to go by itself, they were looking at marionettes first, and they were trying to figure out how to remove the, mari- or the uh, puppeteer from a marionette and get essentially the same effect. And we had those kind of wind up things since as early as I think 1700s or something like that. Like music box type stuff. Yeah. And the, a lot of books about robotics and AI actually start the birth of the robot concept as a physical object rather than the word robot that early. And I think, again, it's really cool when you take a child's perspective and a child's story and the idea of something that winds up, we always think of as a toy, yeah. but it's robot in the sense that we can understand. And certainly TikTok is a toy of a sort. He yeah. may be large, but he's not like a warrior. He does not dress like a soldier. Well, he does have a World War One helmet and a mustache that moves when he talks, yes. which I fucking love. And he's but, made out of brass. But he, he doesn't have a saber, you know, no. or a gun or something. He just, he kind of looks like a bowling ball with two, like, uh... To, to, tube stuck to, as his legs and he, he, he hobbles spring, around he springs like, oh, oh, yeah. the, the actor that played him I think I want to say I know that Deep Roy was in this movie but I'm not oh, sure oh he was Deep the Roy puppeteer actually, for the Tin Man I see okay because um, I, I know that for this particular character they had to actually have the actor fold in half oh. and operate the legs and then have a strap over his back Whoa. So that he could not actually see what he was doing. He was bent down like if he were to do like a, was it a somersault? A little, sure. Yeah. Wow. And so pretty much all the time when this actor was on set had to be folded over like that. So every time I was looking at these little toddling leg kind of things, I'm thinking, oh my God, that's some dedication. That's taking years <laughs> off of somebody's life. That is crazy. And it's really all for love of the book yeah. as far as that goes. Because if you look at the lion later in this movie and like the ending scene it's almost an exact representation of the drawings of the cowardly lion in those original books it is yeah and same thing with tiktok same thing with like the really terrifying scarecrow yes <laughs> once they get him back it's the drawing made life yeah the people who made this movie you know in contrast with mgm who was looking to make a musical because that's what they were doing then and like 30s it was all about musicals it was all about spectacle and it was all about technicolor and you know translating the shoes into bright red because that's more interesting with our new technology this movie isn't regressive as much as it is like playing playing with the nostalgic aspects of the books as they were in a way that's almost alienating when they yeah. when they try to make it real. I it's guess. kind of like the remake that the Coen brothers did of True Grit, where yes. it's a love of the original book rather than a remake of the movie that was based on that book. Yes. 
And, and this, I, re- I really wanted this Dorothy to be more like Haley Stanfield, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so this would have been <laughs> more a of a, a thirst for blood. Yes. I could do with like a thousand more movies with a character like her in, in True Grid. She's oh, God. Just, she's spectacular. She's amazing. Uh, that that movie couldn't have been made without her. Yeah. Um, I've got to say, though, a 10-year-old Feruza Balk, who would yeah. later be the villain of um, The Craft. That's our Nancy. And, yeah. And, yeah. and in American, mm-hmm. uh, American History X, she's Ed Norton's girlfriend. Yeah, yes. I mean, so, it's psychopathic girlfriend. So it's it's kind of cool to see a 10-year-old version of her able to really carry this movie. And what I kind of love about this depiction of Dorothy is that Dorothy is sort of unfailingly courteous and polite throughout it. And she's incredibly forgiving. There's moments where TikTok has to come to her rescue because Mombi has grabbed Dorothy and is dragging her to the the tower so she can grow up and eventually lose her head to Mombi. And TikTok comes to the rescue, but freezes because his action runs out and he apologizes to Dorothy for being unable to rescue her. And Dorothy's immediate reaction is, it's okay, TikTok, it can't be helped. And that's a phrase she uses a couple times when a companion fails in some way or puts them in danger and apologizes immediately to her and says, oh, I'm sorry, like uh, Jack Pumpkinhead is kind of inadvertently responsible somewhat for their crash in the gump. And um, he's like, I'm sorry. She's like, it's okay, Jack. It can't be helped. <laughs> but it's that learn maturity thing again that is being asked of her mm-hmm. when well, she's back on the farm. She's babysitting these these characters, though. Here, Here's yeah. the thing is you come in and that Belinda is uh, her animal, her pet, essentially, who mm-hmm. she has to take care of. But each of these characters are characters that are like children to her. They're like, the yeah, children Jack that she literally has to... calls her mom. Yeah. yeah. One, yes. And one of them <laughs> wants really, uh, the, the pumpkin head man really wants to call her mom, you know? Uh, no, I, I thought the one that I remembered most was because of the sort of the perpetual Chekhov's gun of the winding on TikTok. Mm-hmm. is at a certain point you, you are going to get sick of this happening again. And so Dorothy ends that by saying, just remember to wind yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, and that's it solved. What I love though, is that that wind up is actually sort of subverted at the end that TikTok pretends to run down as part of a plan. And it's actually yeah. really smart where yeah. they have to go one by one into a room as part of a guessing game to the gnome King to free their friends. And if they're unable to guess which one of these ornaments is secretly, their transmogrified friend after three guesses they become an ornament themselves and TikTok pretends to run down so that Dorothy has to go and wind him up so that the two brains can be in the room at the same time saying hey I've only got one guess if you can see what I turn into maybe it'll help you and it's kind of smart that's yeah. more than I would have come up with but <laughs> little things like that that's the last time we deal with him getting wound down and it's not something that's happening constantly to the point that that TikTok is more of a, a hindrance in that. He still is this great character who's kind of deadpan all of the time. I think at one point he grabs one of the wheelers who's like yes. begging for mercy and the says, interrogation scene <laughs> where he's just like, how, you know, it's like, you feel, feel bad about doing this to me. And he's like, I am a machine. I cannot feel good or bad about anything. And I was like, Whoa, <laughs> it's like Robocop. <laughs> I mean, I, I love that about TikTok and also that he has instructions sort of in raised letters uh, on his back engraved. Because he's yeah. basically like a steampunk John Wick, <laughs> where he's like a single man army. Yes. Um, he but, is the most unstoppable force in Oz, which is why it's okay that he is the army of Oz, and there's no other. There's, he's an army of one. I love mm. it. Um, so the Gump is the final member of this crew, and I think the Gump is my favorite. Because it's he's kind of like what Tony Shalhoub in Galaxy Quest was, where <laughs> all of these characters are kind of freaking out about this crazy stuff happening to it, and the Gump just seems to take it all really well. Like if I mean, because he was at one point like sort of a green moose like creature that was you know hunted and mounted on a wall. And now he's been brought back to life. And if that was me, I would do nothing but scream. I'd I have no mouth and I must scream. You it's scream like until you go unconscious. Then you wake up and you scream again. Yeah. And he's just like, oh, this is new. I mean, he takes it really, really well. And they, they basically build this monstrosity by attaching his head to two sofas, attaching uh, ferns for wings <laughs> and uh, a tail. And they just tile it all together with ropes. And he's just like... Well, that's weird. I mean, that's his whole reaction to it. He's like, well, that's a thing. This is definitely more. The last thing I remember is a loud noise in the woods. And I kind of love how well he's taking it. Because he's a little bit Eeyore-ish. 
But at one point, he's starting to fall apart, and he says, well, I don't think I'm going to last very long. I don't feel very well put together. (laughs) There is so much talk of that, like things that otherwise would sound extremely fatalistic, but for some reason just don't come across that way in you know how it's performed, I guess. And maybe it's because of the childlikeness of... Of, of the mindset, I guess, behind their adventures and all of that. But again, there's there's this constant awareness of the stakes. I mean, you do have a person who wants to take your head. Mm-hmm. You do have people that are decapitated and turned into statues. These things, again, really kind of hardcore horror elements for most kids to grasp. Yeah. But what I love about them doing that in this movie is they give kids credit And that's something I have to say that, like, post-80s, it's very rare that we give children credit in Mm. movies. It's uh, Well, kids know when they're being talked down to. Yeah. Yeah, And I miss that. I, for one, miss that in movies, that that as a kid, you could enter into something and be treated like you can handle it. Mm -hmm. And even if it scares the bejesus out of you as a kid, there's a fondness to that. But I think that also translates not just to Dorothy, but to the audience as well. And I think that's an opinion that the filmmakers have of the kids watching this movie, that they can handle it. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of Don Bluthian in its its thought process, where if you give somebody a happy ending, they can handle being scared. And I think that a lot of kids really kind of enjoy being scared. They like feeling that the media that they're taking in is a little bit, just like a sliver over what there's appropriate for them. We call it controlled danger. Yeah. Yeah. Like they know it's basically safe. They're not walking into like a saw movie, but it's something that's just (laughs) slightly above their appropriate age range. And there's something kind of enticing about it. I actually put down in my notes. It's funny. You said the saw thing is that, uh, the scenario with the, uh, the I keep wanting to say goblin <laughs> Sarah, Jeez. you have twenty one hours, or your baby brother will be mine, yeah and that no. that same kind of scenario with the uh I, I suddenly can't think instead of, the of being the, the baby brother, it's the scarecrow, yeah, and mm. he's z- zapped into like a little uh like into a little emerald. Yeah. On a shelf somewhere. That, that reminded me of the Star Trek original series episode where the godlike beings were turning the uh, security crew members into little piles of salt. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, those guys. But yeah, the, the thing with the Gnome King is that he's fucking terrifying in this movie. He's kind of like a Bond villain where he'll make you food and be really gracious to you. But the minute you start to turn the tables on him, he's a really bad loser. Mm-hmm. And they're, he's, they're like rock elemental monsters who can appear in any rocks they want to. Yeah, the, which is got, fucking terrifying. He's got this minion who is really just a claymation face that can pop up through the surface of rocks. The animation for that is just, it's still delights me yeah and that in in many regards i know that people look at like special effects technology as especially during that time as like archaic they look at it from a continuum of this is more primitive and this is less primitive and that's not the way i feel about using different mediums for that like practical effects i i was stunned for me at how much wonder and reality I could mm-hmm. get simultaneously from those faces, like, and how much I was still afraid. Yeah. At 32 years old, I looked at it and I just, oh my God, this is frightening, but this is intriguing. I love the way that the, the minion character's face affects the rock because yeah. he changes it and then he moves. It's almost like he's an Etch-A-Sketch where the things that he did before are still there. He hasn't wiped the screen completely. He's just moving more lines and dragging himself across the face of this rock. And you can sort of feel it like sliding. His face is flat. He's archiving. Yeah. An archive tape. Uh, yes. Something. Yeah. It's, I, I felt like this is one instance. I kind of, we talked about this with Terminator 2 Judgment Day where using the CGI was done so smartly and sparingly uh, that the that the ways they used it were things that would hopefully s- sort of stave off any unrealism that would come from the medium at the time. So having in the dark or having those rooms that have sort of shiny floors and stuff, you know, like mm-hmm. those sorts of mm-hmm. things that made it a little easier to carry that off. For this, the claymation is perfect because it's claymation about rocks. Yes. And yes. clay is clay. And yeah. so in that sense, the way it, the, the light bounces off of it, it is rock, essentially. Yeah. It, it, that, it is the best effect in the movie. And you get far. to see the Gnome King transform from a claymation character into a yeah. live action character yes. in heavy makeup. Yeah. And I love that transition. And as he gets people angry and emotional, when Dorothy finally figures out 
the trick it is to figuring out who of these ornaments are people and which of them are just ornaments. He fucking loses it and goes claymation again. Yeah, it's the the progress of him uh, turning more human as they're losing versus regressing back into rock. Like it's very Harryhausen, yeah, to mm. me, and I think that's mm. another reason I loved it so much. Is very Clash of the Titans, very physical, and something about that physicality makes it again seem more dangerous and more real. And when know? he's at like that full on devil mode, yeah, he oh is. I mean, there's a physical thing there because he's a claymation creature who grabs the gump to eat him, and yeah. he pulls the couch off of the head that they managed to pull off, and he just. Slurps it. Well, no, it is his mouth opens grotesquely, and there's it like is, flames down it, there. It's like it a isn't volcano. just a human mouth that like un, unfurls, and it's like enormous and huge. And he's dropping in, you know, characters that you don't want to die for, like the like the Jack and the Jack and the Box man. Oh, what's God. his name? Uh, the, Jack Jack Pumpkinhead. Jack, Pumpkinhead, where he's yes. he he basically pinches his feet and is dangling him upside down like a yes. shrimp, and. Oh my god! And then the the death of the the gnome king is one of the that's one of those yeah. there's there's the screaming heads of Mombi, there's the laughing wheelers, and especially there's the death of the gnome king as these three images that just seared themselves onto my young brain because <laughs> the thing that kills the 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 gnome king eventually is that he's dangling upside down except Belina the chicken is inside of Jack's head and she finally lays an egg. <laughs> and it just rolls slowly around the edge of that and just Allergic plops down his throat. <laughs> yeah. It's that, that's the whole thing. Like, remember the wheelers were freaking out about the fact that she had a chicken? A chicken! And there's, again, that weird little kid logic kind of thing. It's like, what? what is the what is the poisonous thing to a gnome king? Is a chicken? It's a chicken. Like a chicken egg. <laughs> a chicken egg kills him. And I'm still not sure why. I, I feel like the same was like the H.G. Wells thing. Like it was like, what's going to stop these uh, aliens? The common cold. We're like, okay, we're just going to throw in, a, you know, a Deus Ex Machina <laughs> in the form of something mundane. But what I love right? is that that moment where the gnome king realizes he's just swallowed an egg. Mm-hmm. There's this it's terror. Poison. There's this terror on his face and in his claymation eyes that is way more horrifying. <laughs> than anything I'd seen in a kid's movie. Anything that isn't like, oh my God. It's just like, his eyes are practically sweating and they slowly go gray. And then there's that skull-like look. Yeah, he the just really deter- skeleton-y oh, look as he And there are flames behind him, for yeah. fuck's sake. And his, look, <laughs> his uh, claymation minions, poison, poison. <laughs> also, oh my gosh. You, you made mention of Don Bluth earlier and then thinking on that death scene for the gnome king i was i was brought back to the other movie death that terrified me more than anything as a child it also involved the flames of hell it made me think about the uh the hell dog and all dogs go to heaven oh yes that again there's that level of like we are fine with you being scared despite you being a child which makes you feel kind of awesome every time you get through this part of the movie yeah it gives you a chance to be brave yeah and a lot of movies they they kind of pad that i think nowadays and i'm speaking as somebody who's not a parent at all um but it seems like parents of our generation are much more shielding of our – I mean, they basically – we were free-range kids in our generation. They just threw us out in the woods. You know, hang out in the woods. You might find porno or somebody might stab you out there. <laughs> um, so there was that kind of weird sense of, oh, I let the kid out. Just tell him to be back by supper time. But, yeah, it, there's something – that because of that changing social moray, this movie is so much more potent now mm-hmm. because it just feels like I watched this as a kid, but seeing it as an adult just jars me. I'm like, holy shit, this is a Disney movie. Well, but right after your generation, like just just a couple years difference between you and me is the millennial generation, who everyone's saying is always coddled and stuff. Well, you but did destroy you, uh, TGI Fridays. Oh, I destroyed uh, uh, napkins. Mayonnaise. And, you know, and Applebee's apparently, too. It's The list is endless. Thank you, by the way. Um, <laughs> hey, you're welcome. <laughs> I actually, I was just reading a book on this subject um, called Millennials and the Moments That Made Us. And there are, they've, already been, they've already passed? Well, it's it's interesting because it's it covers 1981 to the time of publication, which was about 2016. And one of the things they were talking about is how Gen X kids had that, again, free range sort of childhood. And we're nostalgizing that now with things like Stranger Things. Mm. Um, But 
kids in the millennial generation, it was largely because dual income households were more common. Mm -hmm. And instead, parents were offloading culture war fears onto the government to take care of. So this is where you get more regulation of, oh, we need McGruff, the crime dog. We need dare. Um, Violent video games. Yeah. We, we need the V chip if we're talking Clinton times. And so basically it was after this like free range thing, they regarded a lot of the Gen X kids as through this Beavis and Butthead lens of like slacker kids and that millennial kids were supposed to like rise up and somehow be these hero children. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why all of us are geniuses and special and get trophies and all that. It's all very much about comforting the parents for the fact that they were not able to be around for their kids. And so that's when you get media tightening, mm-hmm. tightening into this. Well, we can't scare children. We can't upset children. We can't do anything. And now video game violence is hurting our children. The government has to regulate our children for us. Because we can't be home to do it ourselves. And you can view the difference in media. Basically, you hit, what, mid-90s or -hmm. something? And everything for kids just tones way, way down. But the movies of, you know, your, your youth in the 80s and stuff, kids could go on adventures. Things could be risks. You could have these karate kid moments where kids have to sort of take care of themselves. You could have these labyrinth sort of things where... The parents don't really understand, you know, and kids are capable in this regard. And it's not viewed as negligent. You don't have parents writing angry letters going, how dare you make a movie about a child who tries to do something on their own? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's <laughs> weird. interesting to me. <laughs> it's weird thinking that even in the age before all of that, that Disney, who was kind of ahead of the curve on kind of protecting their corporate image and not pushing the boundaries too hard. I mean, they wanted to push the boundaries technologically, but they didn't want to have angry letters from parents. Mm-hmm. And this was that's why Don Bluth stuff was so much more kind of weirdly transgressive and yeah. subversive mm-hmm. compared to Disney stuff. And the fact that Disney did this in 1985, this really is an instance of, of how did this movie get greenlit? How did this movie get through all the steps and signed off at all the levels where it eventually got released this way and not taken away and binned. Uh, this was Disney at its, at its probably financially weakest. This mm-hmm. is the era of, Hertz years, right? of, of Black Cauldron. Yeah. And uh, what is the Fox? The, the Fox, Fox movie. And the Fox, Hound. Fox and the Hound. Fox and the Hound was there. And there was one after Great that. Mouse Detective. They were yeah. all terrible failures at the box office. They were all critical and commercial, commercial failures. I have a certain affection for them, though. No, oh, I mean, we of love them. Of oh, course. Yeah. But, but that's because they were interesting. But this was why there was a port was it was ripe for having a Don Bluth arrive at this time because Disney really was at weak at the sweet point in the mid eighties when it was collapsing. You have some things like uh, you know, Transformers movie nineteen eighty six that was probably gonna be one of the best remembered and well regarded animated features of that era. Why? Because Disney was asleep at the switch. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you have things like Optimus Prime dying on screen and turning into a dead gray robot <laughs> and making children cry in theaters. Yes. Which is something that an animated Transformers movie would never do again. And by the time I was eight or nine, that's when we were having the Disney Renaissance, um, yeah. or what many regard to be the Disney Renaissance. And that was largely, if I could quote the Animaniacs on that one, the same old heroine, (laughs) where essentially they found a formula that worked. They had a big box office success with uh, Little Mermaid. And then they just repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated. And they wouldn't take any risks for a while. Come on, Kit, when has Disney ever done that? (laughs) No, but that's the point that Disney defined the expectations of media for childhood. That's true. Which is why we don't see movies like this hardly ever. I, I think I, I, going I, to see How to Train Your Dragon was probably one of the more frightening kids' movies sure. I'd seen recently. A kid sure. actually losing a leg. Yeah, you know. Yeah, that's not I'd something Disney for, would ever for do. For this movie, this is this is a Disney uh, Disney movie as a footnote. So you, you're not. I, I feel like the way you would talk about this movie in the pantheon of Disney movies uh, in times before this and times after this is you'd say, "Oh, well, it's a Disney movie like Little Mermaid." Um, in this one, it's. This is a return of uh, you know return to Oz is a Wizard of Oz sequel that happens to be a Disney movie. It's a Buena Vista Pictures one. So yeah. if you look at who their distribution it, or who their distributor is for this 
am I using the right distributor? Um, yeah. Like Nightmare Before Christmas, which Touchstone Pictures. Yeah. And so as it was, they were able to kind of like poo-poo how Nightmare Before Christmas didn't do as well as they hoped because it was under the umbrella of Touchstone Pictures. People weren't thinking of it as a Walt Disney feature. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was the same as Who Framed Roger Rabbit, also 1986. Yeah. So I think mm-hmm. they were they were using that different label to do some of these movies that were a little bit darker and stuff. But their public image wasn't recovering from their animated fare. Yeah, they, they so. want to sell tickets to Disneyland. They want to – Disney was like – it was brand management before any other studio did brand management. Mm-hmm. I mean, they really are as hardcore about that as possible. I mean, how many people have quit – blockbuster movies because of disney's brand management sure. that we've seen <laughs> sure um that's why we didn't get you know lord and miller on solo is because of that sort of thing but it seems like when you're in that moment where the powers that be are as weak as they're going to get when we're desperate for any kind of hit and we're like well we're not doing well so it's not like we can clamp down on anybody right now because we're just trying to appease shareholders that's when we put out the scariest fuck oz movie and in the case of this movie in order to get this movie directed by uh the person in question give me that name again oh it's uh walter merch <laughs> thank you in order to get this movie made it actually was something where spielberg had to vouch for him. And Lucas had to step George in. Lucas had to vouch for him. Yeah. Yeah, he got As fired from the movie for like a couple of weeks. Yeah. They were they were going to cut it out. I think there was a change of leadership at Disney and he was going over budget and yeah, this I think that as a piece of art and I think Nightmare Before Christmas is a good comparison because that's a movie that did not do well at the time but has become a cult hit on the level of which I've really very rarely seen. Yeah. <laughs> they still sell an incredible amount of Nightmare Before Christmas merch. Yeah. And it's kind of aiming for the same kind of feel as this, the sort of mix of the whimsical and the scary that I think has become a real brand now, but people didn't know how to react to it. Have you ever watched the Siskel and Ebert review of this movie? No. no. They hated it. <laughs> and the weird thing is they come across more like fuddy-duddies. Of course. Uh, shaking, you know, old man yells at cloud uh, <laughs> than any other time I've seen those guys. Because I think most of the time they were mostly on point, especially Roger Ebert. And they're angry at it for not being the 1939 movie. They're like, why isn't this a musical? Why isn't this bright and colorful? Why is this scary? And I'm like, well... The thing they're not asking is, well, maybe they're going more off the source material. Maybe mm-hmm. this isn't. There are things that they had to license for this because, yeah, the Oz books are public domain, but the Ruby Slippers aren't. Mm-hmm. The It's All a Dream ending was a product of the original 1939 movie. Mm-hmm. And those were things that they incorporated into this because, you know, the silver shoes are not a thing that people know yeah, culturally. Yeah, don't think of it that way. Oz to most people is that 1939 movie, and you have to have elements of that. Or it becomes kind of weirdly unrecognizable to some people. And this is that stuff that was in all those other books that they never adapted. This sort of weird, just kind of like, there's a much more Lewis Carroll vibe to it. Sure. Yes. Where there's this weird absurdity and body horror and these weird people who are kind of um, analogs for weird things in the real world. And yeah, I, I kind of love that about this movie is that it's just so fucking weird. And it... It's a it's a weird movie being made by the least or most risk averse film studio of all time, mm-hmm. and the fact that it's a Disney movie to me again I I know I keep repeating myself but it's a minor miracle that this got made I mean there had to be the stars and absolutely the right alignment or this would have sat on a shelf yeah and would have never gotten past even the script stage. Mm-hmm. It, it, one thing that impresses me is Disney, as of late, has has come to be, uh, for them, it's probably a token status, but at least nods to inclusion of people of uh, different races, of different sexualities, and of different genders. And I give credit to this, that this movie is not afraid to dress the Gnome King up in little girl's slippers. Yeah. He's, and he's totally rocking them. Yeah. He loves them. So it's, <laughs> it's totally fun. I'll wear anything that yeah. gives me magic powers. <laughs> yeah, for real. You're gonna so, drop those behind, you know. Other than that, I think the only the only real sexy person in here is the princess. But then she be, she quickly becomes not very sexy. She's playing like a mandolin at the beginning too. It's oh, princess zombie. It's pretty yeah. decent. Well, also, I I want to get at those costumes since you were talking about ruby slippers. 
did anyone get a distinct like a mono vibe from her costume like final fantasy vibe yes <laughs> yes that was wild it's like porcupine quills so on her back cool. yeah. oh it, my god the, the costume design in this movie is incredible the, yeah. set, design, the set design is really amazing i mean everything in this is it evokes a, a feel like you look at mom b and you're like oh that's a bad guy yeah like you know right away that there's something wrong about her even the mandolin thing she's playing is really her, creepy her, yeah. her like sitting room her palace which is i couldn't tell whether or not it was a set they made or they there's just some European uh, room somewhere made in the you know in the 16th century that was a room full of mirrors. But this thing looks amazing. The fact that, that you the didn't room know. looks fucking expensive as hell. That's what yeah. I mean. It's like yes. the fact that it could be a real place or it could be a set. Yep. That's a sign of brilliant set design. I mean, you could do the Game of Thrones thing where you use real locations and you use amazing set design on top of it, or it could be just something that you put together on a studio stage, and it just looks incredible. It feels lived in. It never feels like you're watching a play while watching this movie. But it also feels like a dream. Yeah. yeah. And that's what's so beautiful is that, you know, you have Dorothy landing in, you know, in the desert as it's drying up and all of that. And right next to it is the green of mm-hmm. Oz, like within sight. And you you have that. And then you have her going into the courtyard and seeing all the statues of the headless dancers. You have... The shapes in Oz, like one of them looked like an arabesque or something. Hmm. And just these really dreamlike, round, high fantasy sort of images in that. So that even though you had the real physicality of the set, like just the way they balanced everything color wise, just it it felt like a dream. Yeah, it- You know, it's hard to do both, do concrete and... So this, this had an interesting diversion from the first one as well as the first movie is in, is entirely on sound stages mm-hmm. and well yeah there is a lot of stuff that they are they have these great fantasy like uh, locales that are clearly a, a sound stage so, some part of this especially in Kansas takes place outside yeah, you, yeah. And that, that is that's as jarring enough as it is because your sort of visual memory of what Oz is is sort of an entirely theatrically like a kind of a theatrical model where it's you know that it's a room even if it's a very large room it's a it's a storybook yeah. and yeah. then you look at Kansas and Kansas is entirely empty and i think dorothy while she's being taken to the sanitarium goes past this town which is as sparsely populated to her this is probably the city to her mm-hmm. and there's like five buildings that are sort of apart a dirt road and it has this tiny little sign and it looks like the i mean this is the bare minimum for what you could call civilization. And she does make this sort of excited thing like, Oh, I've never driven past Franklin before. Like this is as far away from this as she's ever gone aside from Oz, of course. Yeah. And that the world just feels so empty and muted and it feels real. And that's something that I think is a beautiful contrast to the fantasy world. I think fantasy is the hardest thing to do in live action. It's also Tatooine. Yeah. yeah. And it's also Courage the Cowardly Dog. It's like, I don't know if you've seen that cartoon, but it looks like they smashed those two things together. Is the You can see why Luke wants something beyond Tatooine. He's a Disney princess. He just wants yeah. something more. <laughs> just something more. And, but you can see why and yeah. how they communicated Tatooine to you through the film. But then also, if you've seen Courage the Cowardly Dog, that image of the little house that's just in the middle of the desert, in the middle of nowhere, literally called the middle of nowhere is where they live. It's just this weird skeletal looking house with like a wind turbine or something, a little windmill up like that and endless stars. So there's this capacity for weird shit to happen that's communicated with that image, too. And uh, I'm hoping listeners have seen this cartoon as well, but it it gets to the weird the way this movie does. Um, I don't know. I I think that that's important, though, to be able to communicate the emotional aspect, too, of what this child's adventure is going to be and what their motivations are going to be using setting. And nobody can fault this movie. This movie nails it. Because you are right about the idea of setting is that there are characters that drive the story, of course, and that's how Dorothy interacts with it. But it's, but Oz, excuse me, Oz is, as in the first movie, a character in and of itself. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the topology of it, the forces that govern it, some of them 
the rules that are magical and some of them that are mundane, but largely like you, you're along for the ride because the unfolding of the movie is you exploring the different permutations of what Oz is as a weird, bizarre little, little character. This is going to be kind of a weird comparison, but it, this movie reminds me a little bit of Bioshock. I can yeah. see that. Yep. Yeah. Where there's that yep. kind of weird, kind of brassy, clockworky kind of look to it, but you're looking at a broken world and in seeing it broken, you can see how it used to be beautiful. Yeah. And that's what I love about this is that it really like the broken yellow brick road, the, uh, the, like you, you mentioned those, those domes in the Emerald mm-hmm. City where you can see how this place was amazing at one point mm-hmm. and it's just gone. It's, it's broken and there's something incredibly sad about it, even though, You've never seen this version of it brought to life in that way, but you can see the ember of it. And I love that about this movie. It just captures that. The one thing that surprised – this is the first time I've seen it. I didn't see it at all. And I saw it when you were a kid. Yeah. You've probably – You've probably seen it, Kit, before this Barred viewing. from the library, yeah. Yeah. Oh, nice. Um, <laughs> when I was a kid. <laughs> the the thing is, is that the characters that you know of being Dorothy's companions, the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, and the Cowardly Lion, are all in this movie, but they're really not in this movie at all. Yeah. You see them as statues, so you hear about them talked about, um, but they have like a single, basically a real single appearance towards the very end of the movie, and no, no one but Scarecrow has any dialogue. Yeah. And so, again, like Kit said, they don't. They're not based off of the 1939 versions no. of those characters. They're immediately recognizable, but they're the drawings. Like you said, they're the drawings that were in these books brought to life. The Tin Man is not a person in a costume. Again, it's Deep Roy controlling a puppet. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with the Cowardly Lion. It's it's a different version, but there's nothing about it where you're confused because you know exactly what these characters are. The archetypes yeah. are such a strong... You know what the Tin Man looks like. That's the thing that I would like to have seen more because this was it was a budgetary problem. The mm-hmm. reason why the parts of the script weren't filmed where the characters actually interacted with Dorothy and had more, more part of the adventure is because they didn't have the money. And so that was one of the things where I was like, well, there's a real missed opportunity because this movie found its own voice despite the fact that it was just shackled to the idea of the previous movie before it. And I would like to have seen a little that flower a little more, but it it couldn't because of the merch problem. My heart is broken for Ozma oh, <laughs> in yes. this movie because they very much, again, they went off illustrations. They didn't try to make this look like the movie you saw in the 30s. Mm-hmm. And Ozma was down to like the what do they call it, like Art Nouveau or Deco, I'm not sure of my time periods, sort of headpiece. Mm-hmm. With the Oz head. sort of tiara. Yeah, it's really it's cool looking. Really beautiful, amazing costuming. And I remember just sort of watching this with my friend. I was just like, my God, you know, what What a waste. Can you imagine being the costume designer to get to recreate that image and see it just in fits and starts, just in passing, like maybe maybe ten minutes if you're lucky, yeah, of film that you get to see this costume. But I I'm also interested, I guess, in how they integrated these two books into each other and how relatively sure. seamless that worked. Yeah, but I I do also feel a great sense of loss and not getting to see how those iterations would have looked with more work. So if this had been successful. You know, it it would, you know, maybe we would have gotten more. Maybe we wouldn't have got James Franco. You know, who, who knows? <laughs> oh, I still so haven't I seen that. Um, yeah. I'm kind of shocked. I have. Oh, have you? Yeah. Yeah. That's the weird thing, though, is that these books have been in the public domain for a long time. So with the exception, I think, of the, the Ruby Slipper stuff, which you'd, I think you'd still probably have to buy the rights to. Yeah. Um. There's no because MGM is definitely holding on to their visual depiction of that movie as much as they can because it's such a fucking you know it's a it's a piece of cinema history. But um, I'm kind of surprised we haven't seen more Oz. The fact that this was a movie from 1939 that still occupies this much cultural space and is this recognizable to even young kids still that's an achievement for something that's older than jaws and let alone being older than the than world war ii i think that's the reason though like that's the reason we don't see more of it is because it's so iconic because our expectations from the get-go this incredibly beautiful movie that you know it's it may not have been all that faithful and, you know, 17-year-old Judy Garland, you know, <laughs> trying to play for childlike. Uh, but it's it's what lives in all of our memories. And it's to the point that you don't necessarily have had to ever have seen that movie to know that movie. 
And I think that would scare off any director. Yeah. That would scare yeah. off any, you know, filmmaker. Is that where the angry Siskel and Ebert reaction is coming from? It's like it's transgressive to even touch this. I think things become sacred in yeah. our minds. Like you, you look again, you look at Star Wars. Star Wars is sacred to a lot of people. Your memories of something, your experience of something with the people that you love, the memories that you share within your own families, cinematically, it becomes too special to touch for some people, and that scares a lot of folks away from trying. Yeah. You know. I get it. It's it's and it's easier to sort of be safe and boring forever than yeah. it is to get to the, the core. We do exactly what this movie did, which is do something that isn't a love letter to the original movie. It's a love letter to the books. Mm-hmm. And that was something that people were not familiar with, and it felt like somebody was dirtying up Oz rather than um, – Making Oz great again. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Though, I always think that about depictions of Oz, you can only go up from uh, Zardoz. Yeah, because once you're once you hit Zardoz level of sort of cultural awareness, anything you make after has got to be better. Yeah. So I guess that gets us to um, the final question of this discussion to wrap this all up: Is Return to Oz uh, worth your time? One hundred percent. I I have a niece now, and. I'm actually thinking of when she will be old enough to watch something like this with me because that's a tough question. Two and a half years old. <laughs> that's that's I think where she's at is two and a half right now. Um, but I want her to actually see this character with some resiliency, and I like the idea of children developing emotional resiliency through scary experiences. And if you're a responsible adult there with a kid to talk about how they feel about something, what they think about it, and engage in those things. I think you have a great opportunity with this movie. It's, especially as a a young girl, not really getting to see a whole lot of stories where somebody is pretty capable and somebody has to make decisions of their own. Um, (laughs) Which is not motivated entirely by other people's expectations, I guess. Um, I don't know. It's it's funny. I'm going to throw around the F word. I'm going to say this is actually a feminist movie. You know, there's yeah, there's people that ask her to be a caretaker. The person that like inspires her to look into it is basically Ozma Mm -hmm. in the mirror. (laughs) There is some idea that you can keep your own wants and hopes and dreams and fantasy like her in the mirror in the end. But also you have not just the expectations of others, but you should have some sense of pride in being able to do more and provide more and mature without it being for everyone else's sake so much as because you choose to also passes the Bechdel test. It sure does. Yeah. A couple times, <laughs> even if it's just uh, Dorothy and Belina talking about the yellow brick road. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I kind of, I kind of love it actually. Like I had to look at it as an adult and be like, well, you know, there's other people expecting her to take care of them, mm-hmm. to take care of things that they should know how to take care of themselves. Like, you know, TikTok and stuff. And her kind of teaching people how to do that and kind of learning what things maybe are and aren't her responsibility. I've seen a level of that, and I, I'd love for a kid to see that. Yeah, she has to teach other adults how to make a couch monster. <laughs> yeah, you know, and that's a, that's a life skill, Yeah, is what that is. That's a life skill. And actually, after watching this again, I really, really wanted to pop it in. Like, I just finished it, and I thought, let's try it again. Like, I kind of wanted to. That's cool. Yeah, this is my first try, my first run-through. I was surprised by how it felt. To me, it felt in the same way like a never-ending story sort of thing, where it's definitely a product of its time, sort of filmmaking-wise, visually. I felt it was more akin to, like, the second Conan movie, actually, in my... my, (laughs) Which is, you know, obviously was inferior storytelling to the first one, but it had the charm of the clunkiness of like 80s sets and some sort of aesthetics that now would are so dated you wouldn't you wouldn't be uh in a cinema you wouldn't be taken seriously i think but since the technology back then was good enough to make you know with claymation and good sets and some optical effects you can make it happen i think it's a treat on that level too like cuz it is it is in in many ways a special effects movie of yeah. sorts mm-hmm. um and it's it works as it works also works as a very serviceable fantasy story on its own as well. It's I think it's just entertaining. Even if you didn't care at all about The Wizard of Oz, I think it's entertaining as a fun like Saturday night flick and I think there's probably more on rewatch that I would notice too. 
So I love this movie. Yeah, I I really did. This is one of those times where you know you have that nostalgic you know, rear view mirror conception that you formulated when you were a kid and it's just been sort of sitting in a back shelf somewhere and you can kind of remember it. This is one of them that, you know, I loved it when I watched it again. It wasn't ruined by my adult brain. And that's, that's a rare thing that there's a lot of movies that are ruined by my adult brain. Um, so I don't revisit them and this is a revisitable movie. It's, it, it loves its world. It's got, Gorgeous sets and costumes, so many practical effects that are really impressive to this day where I wonder how they did certain things. And that's part of the magic trick of practical sets and, and locations and I'm, and I'm sorry to interrupt effects. you, but if there was an Oscar category for props, yes. this movie would have won in that year, I think. It should have. I think the props <laughs> that were made off of the sets on that were all pretty fucking amazing. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of the negative reviews this movie got at the time are unfair because yeah. they're expecting something of it. Again, that transgressive nature of touching a sacred thing. And I think that if you get past that, I think this movie has kind of earned the love that it deserves. It's just not very well known. And I think it really does deserve to be in the same category as a labyrinth or a never ending story or a dark crystal, the sort of big eighties yeah. fantasy epics with that sort of uh Jim Henson y kind of vibe to them with all these like puppets and monsters and creature effects and I love it. I love this movie to fucking death. And I am so glad. It also moves at a brisk pace for something that's probably an hour and 45 minutes long. It feels like it's less than 90. So mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, what else can you say? It's a great movie. It's a great movie. So uh, Kit to Forge, thank you again for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. If uh, there's anything that you're working on right now that you want to pitch or promote... Working on trying to finish my costume for Emerald City. That's oh, what are you oh, nice? What are you working on? Uh, Moon Knight. Oh, yes. uh, oh Moon that's Knight. awesome. Yeah, that is a great costume. It's also hard to get hit by a car at night wearing a Moon Knight very costume. True, very true. Um, however, it's going to be even harder for me to be able to do basic things like sitting down or eating food with a giant white cape. So we'll see how that goes. Ah, that stuff's overrated. Ah, yeah. I don't need to go to the bathroom. I look amazing. <laughs> exactly. So, oh, man. So thank you again, Kit. Thank it was great to have me. you there. Um, and a special thanks to our episode sponsors. We now have six of them. This yes. is utterly shocking and humbling. Uh, it, their names are Larry Brunswick, Margaret King, Tim Batson, Zuri Russell, Sterling Taylor, and Tom the Belgian. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like Carlos the Jackal. That's except, awesome. Except Belgian. <laughs> we love you, Tom. Uh, if you want to become an episode sponsor, please check us out on patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians or radio versus the Martians.com. Click that brig green button either on the right side and on the bot side, the, the, the bottom of the website. Sure. It's green. It's yeah. great. Touch it. Say Oz. You'll, you'll give us some money. <laughs> it's hard to miss. It's hard to miss. Yes. So we'll catch you guys all next month. Radio vs. the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com.